Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is Day 19. Today we will be reading Book 6, Chapters 1 through 4 in the Ascension edition of the book. We wanted to take this opportunity to thank everyone who has helped support this podcast financially. Your support is so appreciated and helps us to reach as many people as possible. And if you haven't already, please consider supporting us at ascensionpress.com support. Okay, before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we're covering today. So at this stage in the confessions, you're probably paging to the back of the book and thinking, when is this man going to convert? Is it just all rising action and then climax and then end? Uh, Well, almost, but not quite. Uh, So you've begun to appreciate that his conversion is progressive, and that means slow and painstaking at times. But here, we're going to get some beautiful little touches where he brings in the human element. So it's not just like him fighting in the privacy of his own mind with the God whom he, you know, will not admit to his heart of hearts. Rather, it's, it's often through the witness and testimony of those who love him or those who preach and teach to him, et cetera, where he's going to find himself moved a little bit down the road. So we talked about this in the bonus episode, the introduction to book six, and we'll, we'll talk about it as we go through each of these episodes. So let's get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 1. O my hope from my youth, see Psalm 71.5, where were you for me and where did you go? Had you not created me and separated me from the beasts of the field and the birds of the air? You made me wiser, yet I still walked in darkness and upon slick paths, wandering abroad outside of myself in search of you, not finding the God of my heart. And thus I found myself in the depths of the sea, filled with distrust and despairing of ever discovering the truth. My mother had now come to me, resolute in her piety, and following me by sea and land, trusting you through all dangers. For amid dangers upon the sea, she comforted the sailors themselves, men who usually comfort troubled passengers who are unacquainted with the sea, assuring them of a safe arrival, because you had given her a vision that persuaded her of this. She found me amid grievous peril through despair at the very possibility of discovering the truth. But when I told her that I no longer was a Manichaean, though not yet a Catholic Christian, she was not overjoyed as though this were unexpected, but she was now assured about that portion of my misery about which she had lamented, as though I were dead, though to be reawakened by you, carrying me forth upon the bier of her thoughts, so that you may say to the widow's son, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man should stand up and begin to speak, and you would give him to his mother. See Luke seven fourteen fifteen. 
Therefore, her heart did not quiver with tumultuous exultation when she heard that what she, with tear-filled eyes, had beseeched from you was already in so great a part realized, for even though I had not yet reached the truth, I had been rescued from falsehood, and assured that you who promised the whole work would one day give what remained to be done, she calmly replied to me, her heart full of confidence, that she who believed in Christ would see me a Catholic believer before she departed from this life. This was what she said to me, but to you, fountain of mercies, she poured forth more abundant prayers and tears in the hope that you would hasten to my aid and enlighten my darkness. And she hastened all the more eagerly to the church, there hanging on to all the words of Ambrose, praying for the fountain of that water that wells up to eternal life. See John 4.14. And she loved that man as though he were an angel of God. See Galatians 4.14. Because she knew his preaching had led me, for the time being, to my present doubting state of faith, through which she anticipated with great confidence that I would pass from sickness to health after I experienced, as it were, the final fit of illness which doctors call the crisis. 2. When my mother took some cakes, bread, and wine to the churches built in the memory of the saints, as she used to do in Africa, she was forbidden to do so by the doorkeeper. As soon as she knew that the bishop had forbidden this, she so piously and obediently embraced his wishes that I myself marveled at how readily she condemned her own practice rather than debate his prohibition. For her spirit was not overcome by love of wine, nor did such love provoke her to hate the truth as happens for all too many, both men and women, who rebel at the song of sobriety, as drunk men do at watered-down drink. However, when she had brought her basket along with the customary festival food to be tasted by herself and then distributed, she never drank along with it more than a small cup of wine, diluted in accord with her own abstemious habits, tasting the wine for the sake of courtesy. And, if there were many churches of the departed saints to be honored in like manner, she still carried about that one cup to be used everywhere, distributing small sips from it to those around her, even though it was quite watered down and warmed by the sun. In so doing, she sought devotion, not pleasure. But as soon as she heard that this custom was forbidden by that famous preacher and devoted bishop, even to those who would soberly celebrate it, lest an occasion for excess might be presented to the drunken, for whom the annual funeral solemnities looked quite akin to the superstitious practices of pagans, she readily set it aside. And in place of a basket filled with the fruits of the earth, she learned to bring to the churches of the martyrs a breast filled with more purified petitions and to give what she could to the poor, so that communion in the Lord's body might be rightly celebrated there, where, following the example of the Lord's passion, the martyrs had been offered in sacrifice and received their crown. However, O Lord my God, it seems to me, and such is what my heart thinks about this in your sight, that perhaps she would not have so readily stopped celebrating this custom if it had been forbidden by another man whom she loved less than Ambrose, whom she loved most fully for the sake of my salvation. And he loved her too for her devoted religious observance, by which she was constantly at church, fervent in spirit with good works. Thus, when he saw me, he often sang her praises, congratulating me for having such a mother, not knowing what kind of son she had in me, who doubted all these things and thought that the way to life could not be discovered. 3. Nor did I groan in my prayers, seeking your help. Rather, my spirit remained wholly devoted to learning and restless to dispute with others. And even as regards Ambrose himself, I judged him happy according to worldly standards, as a man whom many held in great esteem. The only thing that seemed painful about his life was his celibacy. 
However, I could not suspect either what hope he bore within his breast, what struggles he experienced against the temptations that beset his very excellence, or what comfort he had in adversities, and what sweet joy he tasted with the hidden mouth of his spirit when receiving your bread, chewing upon it like a nourishing cud. All this lay outside of my experience. Nor did he know the surging flow of my passions, nor the abyss of my danger, for I could not ask him what I wanted to ask given how his ear and tongue were forever devoted to the hosts of busy people whose weaknesses he served. And, when he was not busy seeing to these affairs, and this was only a little time, he either would spend his time restoring his body with food, though only as much as was absolutely necessary, or for his mind through reading. However, when he read, his eye passed over the pages while his heart sought out the meaning of the words, with his voice and tongue all the while remaining at rest. Often, when we came into his presence, for no man was forbidden to enter, nor did he normally require visitors to be announced formally to him, we always saw him thus reading to himself. And, after sitting for long in silence like this, for who would dare to intrude upon someone who was so intent upon the task before him, we felt we should depart, judging that he did not wish to be distracted during these few moments of time that he had free from the commotion of others' business so that he could gather his mind. Indeed, perhaps he feared that if the author he was reading should make some obscure remark about a given topic, some attentive or perplexed hearer would then ask him to explain what was said or to discuss some more difficult questions. And if he were to spend his time doing this, he would not be able to read as much as he desired. Though, perhaps the truer reason for his silent reading was that he wished to preserve his voice, for even a small amount of speaking can weaken it. But whatever his intentions, they were certainly good in such a man. However, I certainly had no opportunity to ask him the questions I had, inquiring of him as if his heart were your holy oracle, unless my question might be answered briefly. His full leisure would have been necessary if those tides surging within me were to pour forth into him. But there never was such an opportunity. Indeed, every Lord's Day I heard him rightly expounding the word of truth, see 2 Timothy 2.15, among the people, and I was more and more convinced that all the crafty lies knit together by our deceivers against the divine books could be untied. Thus, when I came to realize that your spiritual sons, reborn by you through their Catholic mother by the gift of grace, did not interpret the words, quote, man who was created by you after your own image, end quote, see Genesis 1.26, as though they meant that you were a physical being with a human shape, with joy, I blushed at having barked at mere fictions of carnal fantasy, not the Catholic faith, though I did not yet have even a faint or shadowy notion of what a spiritual substance would be. Indeed, so rash and impious had I been that what I should have learned through inquiry I condemned without knowing it. For you, most high and most near, most secret and most present, who do not have limbs of various sizes but rather are holy everywhere and nowhere in space, you do not have such a bodily shape. Yet you have made man after your own image, and behold, from head to toe he is contained in space. 4. Thus, in my ignorance concerning how this your image should subsist, I ought to have knocked and asked how this is to be believed, and should not have insultingly imposed the false idea I had formed concerning it. Therefore, all the more harshly was my heart gnawed by doubt about what I should hold for certain, and to the same degree I was filled with shame that, deluded and deceived so long by the promise of certainties, I had foolishly babbled about so many uncertainties, with a spirit filled with childish error and vehemence. Their falsity became clear to me later, but for now I was certain that they were uncertain, 
and that I had formally judged them to be certain when, out of blind contentiousness, I denounced your Catholic Church. But now, though I still did not see that she teaches the truth, nonetheless I had indeed discovered that she does not teach what I had so severely censured her for supposedly teaching. Thus I was confounded and was converting from my former ways. And I rejoiced, O my God, that the one church, the body of your only Son, wherein Christ's name has first been placed upon me as an infant, herself had no taste for childish nonsense, nor in her sound doctrine maintained any belief that should confine you, the creator of all things, in space, however great and large it might be, yet nonetheless bounded on all sides by the limitations of a human form. Likewise, I rejoiced that the old scriptures of the law and the prophets were now laid open before me, not to be perused with an eye that judged them to be absurd, as I did when I reviled your holy ones for holding such an idea about God, when in fact they thought no such thing. And with joy, I heard Ambrose in his sermons to the people often and diligently remind them as a certain rule, quote, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life, end quote. See 2 Corinthians 3, 6. And he would then draw aside the mystical veil, laying open spiritually what merely read in its literal terms seemed to teach something unsound. In this way, he taught nothing that offended me, though I still did not know whether or not it was true. For I kept my heart from assenting to anything, fearing that I would rush headlong into something. However, by hanging in suspense, I was killed all the worse. For I wished to be as sure about things that I did not see as I was that seven and three equal ten. Indeed, though I was skeptical, I was not so crazy as to think that even the latter could not be grasped. However, I wanted other things to be equally as clear, whether bodily things that were not present to my senses or spiritual things that I did not know how to conceive, except in a kind of bodily manner. And I could have been cured by believing so that my soul's eyesight might thereby be cleared and in some way directed to your ever-abiding and unfailing truth. But I was like someone who had had the experience of a bad physician and therefore fears to trust himself to a good one. Thus, my soul's own health, which could only be cured by believing and thus protected against the possibility of believing falsehoods, refused to be cured, resisting your hands. O you who have prepared the medicine of faith and have applied it to the diseases of the whole world, having given this remedy such great and authoritative strength. Okay, so here we are, as St. Augustine has gone from Tagaste to Carthage, and then from Rome to Milan, and Monica comes to him in Milan because, you know, he's like sick or sad or, you know, heartbroken or body broken or some combination of broken, and he likens himself to the son of the widow of Nain or Nain, depending on how you pronounce it, that, that she's kind of interceding before the Lord on his behalf so as to bring out a kind of resurrection or resuscitation, in his case, a resurrection or resuscitation from death to life in the spiritual order, because he's a sinful man, and eventually he's going to become a grace-filled man, and it's by the prayers and the direct intervention of St. Monica that this comes about. So, Father Jacob Bertrand, your thoughts on St. Monica? We've already made some reference to her. She kind of gets involved at various stages. But when you think about St. Monica, uh, what, what do you think about first or second? Mm, first, um, what do I think about St. Monica? I like St. Monica. That's my first. Good. I pray to St. Monica 
often, perhaps not often enough for other people, but for my own conversion <laughs> to intercede for, <laughs> for me. Uh, so uh, that's great. Uh, yeah. And as Father Gregory said, St. Monica has come in and out, but here she she kind of features yet again as she comes to Milan. If I think it, it was in book three when St. Augustine described this dream that St. Monica had of her coming you know, she was kind of not despairing, but growing kind of despondent over her son. Um, so she had this dream that her, you know, our Lord comforted her and told her to sort of be patient. And where she is, so is he. So um, where Monica goes, she brings Christ in a way to her son. So she goes to Milan for the reasons that Father Gregory just explained. So I guess, you know, if you've ever asked, are there people that you want to meet, St. Monica, like historical people, St. Monica would be on there because she was a lady, a woman, like wholly devoted and seems kind of like radically amazing it's like there she is persistent crying praying coming to the bishop of milan trying to get him to do what she wants to help her son yeah it's she's pretty incredible so we see this and you know come alive again in these pages here yeah and there's a, a kind of charming scene recounted here which might be somewhat strange to the 21st century reader where monica goes about this kind of north african custom of presenting votive offerings at the tombs of the saints and martyrs. It sounds like there were some pagan antecedents to this practice that you would like perhaps bring food or drink or gifts to the to the tombs maybe of your fallen ancestors or relatives and that that was translated in the Christian practice to the saints and martyrs. And <laughs> yeah, there there are people who do it in a kind of riotous or debauched way where they're like they're they're having a big party as they go from tomb to tomb and they're probably drinking too much wine or whatever other, you know, alcoholic beverage is on offer. And so St. Ambrose has said in Milan, you're not to do this because of these excesses. Now, mind you, as St. Augustine, you know, he explains to us that St. Monica was not given to these types of excesses. And yet, even though she's very attached to the practice, she concedes because of an obedient love for St. Ambrose. Uh, so she's very appreciative of St. Ambrose, uh, specifically of the role that St. Ambrose is currently playing in the conversion of her son. And so, yeah, she's, she's very docile uh, and she's very kind of like demure before his precept. Now, mind you, I suspect that for a woman like this, she would probably be docile and obedient before the precept of any legitimately appointed or elected authority because it's in her nature. So it's not just because St. Ambrose is holy, but certainly that commends his precept to her reception. So yeah, we think about St. Monica. I have her in my mind as like, if she lived in the 21st century, she would have been born like right around Rockville Center, I, I picture her as a kind of like Long Island, you know, big Catholic family mother who's like just getting everybody into line. But then again, I go off into that image for reasons undisclosed. But she's she's still able to recognize from whence comes her perfection. It comes from God. It comes through the hierarchy of the church and that she submits accordingly. So yeah, I think that's kind of strange to 21st century, 21st century sensibilities. <laughs> yeah. Sensibilities. Yeah, or those two. Yeah, there's. I remember in in reading this part and learning this about Saint Monica. I mean, sometimes with the saints, you just think. I mean, there are saints that we know were great sinners and converted and that sort of thing. But also, even with these saints, Monica, who who don't seem to have lived such debaucherous lives, you know, in their Christian lives, Saint Monica reminds us that there's even purification for those who are pursuing a life of holiness. You know, she's not the Blessed Mother. She requires this sort of yeah purification through the church through the hierarchy through the saint and yeah it's a reassuring thing as well at least to me yeah 
And then from St. Monica, we turn to St. Ambrose. It's funny, St. Ambrose plays such a significant role in the conversion of St. Augustine, and we have them paired up in our minds, but there aren't very many words of the confessions which are dedicated to St. Ambrose. But the ones that are dedicated to him are very charming. You know, they're just like very winsome and delightful. So here we hear about the preaching and teaching of St. Ambrose, and it's really going to help St. Augustine to deal with some of these crass materialistic notions of the Manichees. So we have it in our mind that the Manichees are dualists, so matter bad, spirit good, but they also have like quasi-material understanding of spirit. So what you see, you know, in the preaching and teaching of St. Ambrose is a genuine spiritual notion. So he's going to explain the literal sense of the text of sacred scripture, right? Because all sacred scripture has a literal sense, which is to say, like, what do these words actually mean? Like, what's their historical sense? What, what do they mean in the context of the literary genre? The types of things that the historical critical method would try to, you know, kind of like uncover. But then he's also going to go to the spiritual senses, which departs from those literal senses, or it, it kind of takes its point of departure from those literal senses. And in doing so, he helps St. Augustine to see kind of the life of the true spirit. You know, so when we talk about the spiritual senses there, we're thinking about the kind of allegorical sense or Christological sense. We're also thinking about the moral sense, sometimes called the tropological sense, and then the end times sense, sometimes called the anagogical sense. So God is able to use not only words to signify things, but he's also able to use things to signify things. And St. Ambrose, you know, as a holy man, as a gifted preacher, as one who is saturated in the sacred page, is able to mine for those gems and then to set them before his congregation. So yeah, preaching and teaching as a source of, of liberation from error and darkness sounds pretty close to the Dominican charism, but yeah, I don't know your thoughts on that. I, I think St. Ambrose offers a contrast to St. Augustine's life because you have St. Ambrose who's well-read, who's familiar with Manichaeism because his mother was a Manichae. You have this man who's wholly busy running the diocese in Milan, but also who studies, who knows, who's smart, who preaches well, he's a decent orator, you know, all of these things, but he does them in a different, the context is different, right? Because he does them as a priest, as a bishop, as a Christian, whereas Augustine doesn't. He does very similar things. He studies, he speaks in public, he's, you know, all the, but for, for St. Ambrose, he offers a sort of like, yeah, here it is, but here it is in a holy sense. And sometimes I think in our own lives, we need examples of that. Of, yeah, what I'm doing might not be, you know, unto the glory of God, but it can be like even the smallest tasks and things in our lives. So I, it's interesting to see, and, you know, Father Gregory rightly pointed out that there's not much like sort of text or dedicated to St. Ambrose in the Confessions um, by St. Augustine. But it's interesting to see that even, or, or to imagine that even Ambrose's life offers a sort of example for Augustine to say, hmm, you know, give some pause and reason to look again at Christ. Yeah. And then right about the end of this section, St. Augustine talks about how, you know, he's beginning to see the light or he's beginning to come to an appreciation that the Catholic faith as St. Ambrose preaches and teaches it is in fact the true faith. Uh, but he's unwilling to jump in the deep end because he's conscious of the fact that he's already made a number of errors in his judgment of what, what constitutes the truth in religious practice or in belief. And so because of like past traumas or past bad experiences, now he finds himself chary or less willing 
to engage or to commit. And I think that's something that speaks to a lot of people's experience. You know, like my mind goes instantly to a very grave instance where, you know, like people who enter religious congregations who have troubled pasts or kind of dark secrets, they find it very difficult to recover from that type of, you know, spiritual abuse. But I think to kind of dial it back to a more mundane, I think a lot of people, you know, like you're in a parish and you might have Father X and then you have Father Y and sometimes the whiplash even of that change can make it hard for you in your relationship with the Lord. So, you know, for those who are maybe somewhat yeah, less than willing for the next step of their conversion because they're afraid of, you know, what might be entailed by it. Yeah. Any any final thoughts? Yeah. Another example here that jumps in, into my mind immediately is people's experience with, with confession. You know, if you have a bad experience with a priest who, yeah, was just rude or short or whatever it might be or didn't understand, that happens to all of us. In the end, the lack of commitment or is is a worse sort of thing than than re-entering or diving in or sort of leaning in and engaging because whether or not everything is perfect which it isn't in the church and in our experience of the church it is the church is the body of Christ you know it's where we receive his grace and his sacraments and um, where we receive life from him and although Augustine's coming from Manichaeism to the church you know for a lot of us where we're in the church and haven't had, you know, there are times when we can think of eh, less than ideal, to put it nicely, situations. But um, the Lord still beckons and calls in his church, in his body. So I think it requires a bit of fortitude and certainly a bit of, of faith in, in our Lord to continually re-enter, re-engage, re-plug in, whatever kind of way we want to put it. So the Lord proves himself faithful even if we are faithless or even if the means that are you know, our ordinary means for, you know, enjoying the divine life sometimes prove faithless because, yeah, like Father Jacob Burchell, like you said, he continues to offer himself and he is, yeah, unfailing in that offer. So with that, know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us and we will catch you next time on Catholic Classics. <laughs>